With his gas mask on and machete in hand, Nico Sanchez says he's ready for December 21st. It means possibly the end of the world. I do know about the Mayan calendar. I have done some research on it. Well, Nico there was referencing something that you undoubtedly should remember. You should remember if you are older than, let's say, eight. Okay? December 21st, 2012. All right? That was a big day. It scared the shit out of me. Listen, did I believe the world was going to end? Did 16-year-old, 15-year-old Brendan, however old I was, believe the world was going to end? Kind of. Kind of. And the reason is because you had, for the first time in my life, pseudo-archaeology become mainstream. I hope you're aware the world ends tomorrow. Uh, tonight, uh, at 5 a.m. Eastern Time, uh, zero hundred hours GMT. So says the Mayan calendar, so it must be true. You see, I never considered in my life the idea of pseudoscience and archaeology. I never considered it. I don't know why, but pseudoscience is very prevalent, very prevalent in the world of archaeology. And in fact, one of the things that maybe you don't even consider to be an act of pseudoscience, but it undoubtedly is, is a show that garners about 2 million viewers per episode. And that show is Ancient Aliens. Is it possible the long count calendar was actually counting down to a preordained date when the Maya knew they would disappear? And how about the fact that every single Ancient Aliens episode is literally just a dude saying, is it possible over and over again? This is every episode of Ancient Aliens. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Is it true? No. You know? So maybe don't say, is it possible over and over again? How's that sound? And also, the news, the news, the, in the intro music for the news, that's the new intro music for this show. So let's start the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the State of the Universe. My name is Brandon. I could be a news anchor and I would do it so well. And that's a fact. And listen, that's a fact. And we only share facts here, okay? This week's episode features the great, the great Dr. John Hoops. He's a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Kansas. He's a visiting professor right now, visiting professor, and Greenleaf Distinguished Chair of Latin American Studies at Tulane University in New Orleans. He's here to, today to talk about... He's from New Orleans. He's not from New Orleans. He's a visiting professor in New Orleans. But when I talked to him, he was in Kansas. So I actually don't know where he's at. He could be everywhere and nowhere. No idea. I'll tell you where he was. He was, he was at Chichen Itza, which is the major Mayan monument. Okay. He was there on December 21st, 2012. And he talks to us about that. What was it like? There was, he, he said there was thousands, tens of thousands of people there at the time. Okay. Tens of thousands of people there. What was it like? Did everyone think the world was going to end? Were they just on vacation? What, what's going on? He talks to us about that. We talk pseudo-archaeology. We talk Maya 2012. All right. He was in the news a lot. He was in a lot of publications at the time because he was one of the premier scholars on pseudo-archaeology as it pertained to the Mayans and the 2012 prediction, the so-called doomsday prediction, which was actually not a prediction at all, and it's a ton of nonsense. He's here today to educate us. How was it nonsense? Okay. And how do we prevent nonsense from happening in the future? You understand? He talks to us about fringe ideas. Because guess what? There's tons of them. There's tons of them. Pseudo-archaeology, in my view, is one of the fields 
that, or archaeology in general rather, is one of the fields in which pseudoscience prevails sometimes above actual science. And the reason that happens is because you have incredibly popular shows like Ancient Aliens. Okay? Two million viewers a week. That's insane, right? That's like on par with most primetime television. Two million viewers a week? That's nuts. All right? So, he comes to us today from New Orleans, Nolens. I was in New Orleans a couple years ago presenting at a conference. All right? My cab driver, he said Nolens. Nolens. Welcome to Nolens. That's all he said. N A W L E N S. That's not how it's spelled. He says Nolens. And he also he said, suck the heads. You got to suck the heads. And he's talking about the crawfish, the crawdads, the crayfish. However you want to say it, whatever you want to say. That's what he's talking about. Nolens, suck the heads. In Nolens, we suck the heads. That's what he would always say. And that's all he knew how to say. That's all the cab driver knew how to say. He would say, well, you in New Orleans, you suck the heads. And I, I didn't even know what he meant. I was like, what do you mean you suck the heads? Whose head do you suck? What are you saying? New Orleans, you suck the head. He said that to me. It was a 45-minute drive from the airport to the hotel. That's all he said over and over. I'd be like, sir, how's your day? New Orleans, you suck the head. He just kept saying it. He just kept saying it. And I couldn't get him to shut up. But anyway, you do suck the heads in New Orleans. You break the tail off of the crawfish, you eat the tail, and you suck the head. There's juice in the head, you suck the head out. And that's how you do it. That's how you do it in New Orleans, and that's how you do it anywhere else. Once you go New Orleans, you don't go back. You keep the style, okay? You keep that style. But anyway, I appreciate you guys being here. You guys should follow on Patreon. Patreon.com slash the state of the universe. All right, PayPal paypal.me slash drackler go on my website and click the links please support the show it helps okay these cost money to make these cost you know effort to do and it helps holy shit by the way we had the biggest week in the history of the show ever last week and i don't even know why because i didn't even release an original episode we are literally number one in pakistan in astronomy number one in the united arab emirates and that might be the wrong way to say that okay number four in the united states and top 10 in like every other major country in the world i don't know what happened it just happened all of a sudden it just happened so you know what is it possible that you donate to patreon yes is it possible that you donate to paypal yes is it possible that you subscribe and like the videos on youtube yes is it possible that you rate and review the show on apple podcasts right now five stars good review yes is it possible that you follow me on Twitter and Instagram right now? Yes. And is that breaking news? Oh, I think it's breaking news. I think it's breaking news. Breaking news. So you know what? Here's what I need you to do. Listen to this episode. Let me know what you think. Let me know what the conversation was like. Did you enjoy it? Did you hate it? All right. What did you learn? Do you think archaeology suffers from a pseudoscience problem? Or do you think... That most people that watch Ancient Aliens know that it's bullshit and they just enjoy it. Because that's what I do. I don't even watch it. But when I did, I knew it was nonsense. I knew it was fake. I knew you didn't take it serious. But it was fun. It was fun. And I hope that's what this episode is. Thank you for listening. Please support the show. I hope you like the show. If you want to follow Dr. John Hoops on any website, social media, whatever, check the links down below. Okay? And if you're watching on YouTube, like the show. Subscribe. If you're watching Apple Podcasts, review the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. I never thought of pseudoscience existing in archaeology for some reason, even though it was all around me. 
Like I hadn't realized, and in fact, I might even say that from the outside looking in, and you can correct me, but from the outside looking in, it almost seems like archaeology might be the, the field that has the most pseudoscience in terms of pop culture. Like some, some ideas in archaeology, at least again from the outside looking in, I, I would say maybe are more popular, the fake ideas are more popular than the real ideas. This isn't necessarily the case for astrophysics. Like we can say that most pseudoscience ideas in astrophysics are fringe. Not many people believe them. Not many people think the earth is flat. Way too many. Way too many. But still not a lot, right? In archaeology, I get the vibe that this is like rampant with with false ideologies. What What is your take on on that being in the field for so long? Well, again, we all we see we see things through the lens of what our own experience is. Right. I'm an archaeologist, so I see things through archaeology. Um, because of my interest in pseudoscience, I've also tried to see what it looks like in other fields. And um, I, the flat Earth thing, for example, to, threw me as for a loop. I, I didn't have a clue that people really actually thought that. Uh, there are also people who believe in a hollow Earth, which just yeah. simply you know doesn't uh-huh. make any sense with with geology. Um, but you know, we get shows like ancient aliens and, uh, America unearthed mm-hmm. and the Megan Fox show and, and, um, Indiana Jones. I, I think archeology span has, has kind of grabbed interest in particular because it has this history in pop culture and in, um, um, pulp fiction and things like that. I mean, we have ancient aliens, we don't have real mermaids, uh, but we do have Bigfoot hunters. So yes. Of course. Um, so the cryptobiology thing is 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 pretty big, um, but I think archaeology lends itself to pseudoscience just because of basic ignorance, you know, and that begins mm-hmm. with people's understanding of the past, um, which typically for most people is inherently flawed, because the main narrative about the past that they encounter first is the Bible, mm-hmm. which is not a reliable account of ancient history yeah one of the interesting things that i i I tend to think of the pseudoscience stuff a lot i I do a lot of science communication so of course i encounter it a lot i get a ton of emails from a ton of people that try to convince me of their ideas about flat earth or hollow earth or there's no gravity or you know whatever um one of the the things that i think is is easy to defend against those ideas in the realm of astrophysics is that People have a clear understanding of the scientific method as it applies to astrophysics, but I don't think people have a clear understanding of the scientific method as it applies to archaeology. Um, and, and in fact, I would even go as far as to say that a lot of people don't understand the science that actually goes into what it is that you do. Do you get that um, feeling too, or am I completely off base? No, I, I think that's probably true. I think a lot of people are confused about archaeology because they think it's really just kind of making up stories about the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I frequently encounter is people say, well, how can you know what happened in the past? You can't go there. You don't have a time machine. Right. Um, well, to an astrophysicist, I would say, well, how do you know what happens in a black hole? You, you can't go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't you can't you can't visit the sun, right. how do you know what's actually happening there if you can't go there? Well, because we have science, because mm-hmm. we can test hypotheses, because we can we can build sort of um, the most likely explanation and then test it to see whether that works out. Right. Um, but then there's the idea of math, right? 
Like people put a lot of um, faith in math, maybe more faith than they should, but th they see a science like anthropology, a science like archaeology, and it's devoid, mostly devoid of math. Right? It's mostly devoid of like some physical underpinnings that you can use to prove a theory from first principles. And so people get caught up in that and they think that um, this they think that it is more mendable than it actually is. They almost think that you could take historical contexts and and bend them to fit you know whichever model you want them to fit. And people try to do that in science too, but the thing that we use in science to tell them they're wrong, specifically in my field, is the mathematics. We say, right. no, 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 the universe couldn't be a, a giant oscillating thing. A black hole couldn't be infinitely dense. And, and here's the math to prove the thing that we're saying. But right. archaeology lacks it, right? So that, that I think, also stews up a lot of um, disbelief isn't the word, but, but um, room for skepticism and pseudoscience. Well, I think there may be some of that. Um, certainly, we do use math in archaeology. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it is um, oriented towards probability and statistics, right. um, you know, how, how accurate a statement can we make about something based on reasonable expectations? Um, but you can sort of think about what the hierarchy of difficulty is in terms of mathematical models. Mm -hmm. um, astrophysicists have it easy. You're just describing the behavior of particles and waves and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it ratchets up a bit if you apply it to chemistry and then organic chemistry. Right. Um, and those models become a bit more difficult, especially mm -hmm. because you're dealing with extremely complex model molecules and, and, and very complicated systems. Well, that's just physics and chemistry. Right. Then take it up to biology, where you're actually talking about complex multicellular organisms and the mm -hmm. habitats and ecosystems in which they exist. And, and just within the realm of biology, you're dealing with massively complicated uh, systems. Well, and then add human consciousness to that and, and try to deal with the, with the human world. And it just becomes mind-blowing in terms of its complexity. How are you going to be able to quantify that in, in a reasonable way? Um, well, people try to do it with, you know, SimCity and Sim Civilization and, and, mm -hmm. and things like that. But it winds up becoming a, a really simplified approximation of, of how human behavior actually works. Um, you know, if, if it were easy to quantify human behavior, we would have had AI, artificial intelligence yes. decades ago. Exactly. We, yeah. We still don't have very good AI. No. Because it's extremely difficult to model uh, human cognitive patterns. Right. Yeah, exactly. There, there's a lot of chaos in that, right? There's chaos in any field that you add on, right? You talked about the layers, the layers of complexity. Um, Physics does have... Um, the benefit of, of being able to isolate those layers in the form of experiments or even in the form of mathematics, um, you can isolate those layers and you can try to understand how one interacts with the other in a vacuum, if you will. But, That's but, right. But there's no interest in doing that in anthropology or archaeology, right? Because it doesn't matter how one is working in a vacuum. What matters is the complex structures that exist when they interact with one another. That is, after all, what, what produces the the worthiness of human history anyway. Um, so, well, that's exactly right. Yes. So it's and, a, and you can't begin to do archaeology without some understanding of geology, sedimentation, stratigraphy. Right. But you also need to understand <clears throat> physical processes of how things preserve or deteriorate. 
Um, you also need to understand biological processes of the kinds of things that have affected an archaeological site over time. It's just immensely complex, and it's very difficult to, as you're saying, separate out and isolate phenomena so that you can test them well. Right. So you, in particular, you. what is the day-to-day life like for you when you're not doing a, a dig or when you're not in you, – you primarily do um, archaeology in northern South America, right? Or um, southern actually, North America? Southern, southern Central America and northern South America, what I call the Istmo Colombian area. Um, mostly Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia. Mm-hmm. I have no concept uh, of what an archaeologist does, like in the day-to-day scheme well, of it's, their it's life. probably not all that different from what astrophysicists do. I'm sure do. it's we, not. We, we, we think of papers to write, uh-huh. and then we work on those. Uh, we try to isolate problems that we can, we can focus on. Um, and then we try to learn as much about that particular problem as we can, um, communicating with colleagues, looking at collections, evaluating literature, um, you know, that type of thing. Um, I spend a lot of time online reading PDFs of articles written by other people. Um, I also visit collections and look at objects and, um, and I also communicate with colleagues. I'm, you know, one of the wonderful things about the internet is that those of us who are incredibly nerdy about one particular thing can find a community of other nerds who are also occupied with that one thing. It is incredible. You can, you can literally like anything. You can yeah. like anything at all and you can find a community of it. Like Reddit is great for that, right? Reddit mm-hmm. is has so many – like an unlimited number of things that you could possibly like and, right. and at varying complexity too. Like it could be so specific and you'll find people that love it. Um, that yeah. is one fantastic thing about the internet. It's it's fantastic. Now, you mentioned shows like Ancient Aliens, right? Do you watch Ancient Aliens? I don't. You, have you ever watched an episode? I don't think I've ever made it through an entire episode. Oh, does it like does it like hurt you deeply when when you see it on? It doesn't hurt me deeply. It's just it's just silly. Um, you know, it's it's just like you know, I shake my head at one thing after the next after the next. I mean it. It, it, yeah. It's, you know, it, it's a little bit amusing to see people making logical mistake after um, fallacious <laughs> interpretation. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. Actually, I've the only way I find it is interesting is kind of sitting and trying to say, can I spot the fallacy? You know, can I spot the error? Right. Can, can yeah. I Can I tell what they're doing wrong here? The, um, the reason I ask is because I actually get genuine interest out of watching like. People who believe in flat earth talk about flat earth. Like I'm interested in like almost like honing my own skills. Like, okay, what are they saying wrong? How do I in a logical way would I tell someone that they're wrong? I had someone recently um, try arguing with me on Twitter about flat earth. And um, I don't know why I do this to myself. Like once a month I do this to myself. I'll get in a conversation with some of these people. I always regret it, but I still do it. And this person had told me that gravity didn't exist. And in fact, what we thought was gravity was just density. Dense objects fall. And it, I literally, like if an object is denser than that stuff around it, it will sink. Um, that's why humans are on the ground and the air is in the sky. I had to think for a solid half hour about how this person is wrong. Like I had to be like, wait a minute, this might not be a terrible argument. How is this person wrong? Of course, after 30 minutes, you come to the conclusion that buoyancy literally depends on gravity um but but that's not the point the point is i encounter this thing and and i get a little bit of like interest like scientific interest in sitting back and thinking man 
how is this person wrong? Is there any credence to this idea at all? And do you ever experience that when you are experiencing like ancient astronaut theorists? Do you ever sit back and be like, hmm, there might actually be something to the thing that that person is saying? Sure, absolutely. But but the process that you just described is basically going from Archimedes to Newton in about a half an hour. You know, it mm-hmm. took centuries to go from Archimedes to Newton. Right. Um, there, people did interpret the world in these different ways centuries ago. Mm-hmm. But if you know anything about the history of physics or the history of archaeology, you know that people worked through these problems and and came up with answers to them. Right. Um, it, it's not as if that hasn't been done. That's that's where our knowledge sits right now. We don't have to go through and prove all of those things again mm-hmm. um, because we had Newton and Kepler and a whole host of others who were figuring it out before us. Right. So Ancient Aliens, right, consistently gets over a million viewers. I looked yesterday. A million people watch, which right. is on the History Channel of all places. Mm-hmm. I mean, is the History Channel even regarded as like a, a legitimate source of information anymore? No, it's it was nicknamed the Hitler Channel because oh it really so much uh, I never I didn't so, know that so so much dis, disinformation about uh, the World War Two or actually it was a lot of World War Two uh, fans who were watching programming about the Third Reich. I don't remember a day in my life when the History Channel actually showed history, if I'm being honest. I don't, remember. I don't think. Well, it was it was originally conceived as something that would be similar to the National Geographic specials uh-huh. um, that I watched as a kid um, that actually taught you something worthwhile about science or history. Um, but it soon morphed into entertainment. Yes. So I, I the, the ancient aliens, I'll be honest. OK, I'll be honest. Don't be embarrassed because you're talking to me. I've watched it. Now, I haven't watched it all. There's 14 seasons. Can't watch 14 seasons of Ancient Aliens. Just can't do that. But I've watched some. And I I have to say that, you know, if you could filter out the bullshit in there, there's actually some good – because there's a lot of money behind it. There's actually some good information you can get about the the sites themselves. I'm not talking about the information that's being spewed to you by the people talking. I'm talking about the, the images, the videos, the information about the historical sites. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I always liked that because I don't think there's any other show that has compiled the world's um geoglyphs or or what what are they what is that even called? What is like a the pyramids called? Is there like a word that describes the pyramids, Stonehenge? Monument monuments. Monuments, That's, sure. Yeah. Um that I've never found a show that documents them all as well as Ancient Aliens. So do you like the silver is that a silver lining to you? And and do you sure inca- they get they get great footage? I mm-hmm. mean that that's true. Um, I mean I'm familiar with many of these places, but I learn about places that didn't exist from watching shows like that. It's like oh man, I didn't know about that place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a great way to learn about the world and 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 to see what's actually out there. Do you have kids come in? Because do you have kids come in to your class ever? And and they've been influenced by a show like this. Like man, I want to learn archaeology. I, I'm I, I'm into the ancient astronaut theorists. Well, I, I do. Um, it's often kind of tricky to get them to admit it. Sometimes, I mean, they know that they they know that I'm an archaeologist, right. and they know that ancient aliens is 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 criticized. Um, but yeah, I get people who watch it and who, and who enjoy it. And um, and actually, there are some individuals out there who watch it very carefully. I don't know if you know the work of Jason Colavito. I don't. Um, he's wonderful. He's amazing. Um, his website is jasoncolavito.com. Uh, 
Uh Um, And he actually writes um, viewers guides to ancient aliens where he will go episode by episode and and deconstruct exactly what's being presented. That's not correct. Is he an archaeologist? Um, No, he's he's not just a hobbyist. um, He's he's an avocational um, archaeologist. He's a professional writer. Um, but he doesn't have any formal training in archaeology, but he's, he's a brilliant writer and, and researcher. Right. So when people say, well, archaeologists are prejudiced against anybody who ha- doesn't have a degree, that, that's, that's BS. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, people like Jason are out there doing this, and we think he's great. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I'll check that, and I'll put a link down below for anyone who wants to check that but out. But his viewers, his viewers' guides are, are wonderful. And for anybody who watches Ancient Aliens and wants to get the real story behind these monuments or uh-huh. to, to understand what it is that's being presented that's not correct, uh, either his blog or his published viewer guides to um, to Ancient Aliens are, are excellent. Yeah, I, I, I made the mistake of going on Wikipedia, Ancient Aliens Wikipedia. And um, I was like looking... 14 seasons which is insane right that's like on par with most major well that actually exceeds most major sitcoms like Mm -hmm. that were vastly more successful they are just milking this for all it's worth and i found some episode titles and i I just don't understand aliens and bigfoot the mayan conspiracy which i'm sure we'll talk about the satan conspiracy alien breeders the reptilians right it, it 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 boggles my mind, and it props to to Jason for being able to sit down and and go through all of those. I'm curious, does he ever find? I, I don't know how much you've read of his, but does he ever find information that's like sound and good? Like, wow, they actually did a good job of explaining this particular monument. Um, yeah, there there are things that they that they explain that are you know have bits of. Uh of truth in them but you know when it ultimately comes to the aliens explanation they sort of blow it yeah um but they 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 you know it's a mixed bag though if you if you can't tell the difference between what's accurate and what's not you know it's problematic information Mm -hmm. you know if 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 one fact is correct but the next fact is wrong how are you going to parse through that that's true Um, it's very true but you know, anything that's appealing always has an element of truth in it. Mm-hmm. So nothing is 100% wrong. Um, so long as they keep it at 20%, 30%, something like that, then then they'll, you know, have some, some credibility to it. And actually, I think part of the um, success of Ancient Aliens is, is due to the fact that they understand where that line of credibility is. Mm-hmm. Although I almost think that they have a significant viewership that knows it's all bullshit yes and they watch it because they like to watch the bullshit exactly it's like, it's like people watching jersey shore or real housewives or something like that they they like watching train wrecks um, i think you're so, right so i think people people watch it just to be entertained by how stupid it is yes did you ever see the netflix documentary behind the curve no, I haven't seen that. It's it's um I haven't got to watch it, f- it throughout the whole thing yet, but it's it's uh it's about flat earthers. It's about flat earthers and and they interview some and they talk to them and they try to understand why they believe what they believe. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating to try to take this logical journey with these people and 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 try to understand the fallacies because the fallacies that that this small subset of alien believers undergoes are fallacies that are literally found in every aspect of our life, whether it be our, you know, our political lives, 
our home lives, our science lives. It's everywhere. And it's it's a good thing to try to understand through whatever medium you can come to understand it, I think. Well, and I think it's useful to question things. I mean, this is mm -hmm. an exercise that astrophysicists do all the time, you know, or archaeologists do all the time. We take some basic assumption that we've lived with for years and say, well, let's let's double check that. Let's see mm -hmm. whether that's really correct or not. Let's do another experiment and see if see if we were wrong about that. Yeah, people um, have this idea. Yeah, continue. Well, I was going to say, you know, Socrates mm -hmm. always asked about basic terms. You know, mm -hmm. what does this word mean? Let's take it apart. I think that's a useful thing. I think it is too. I think it's a very useful thing. People get this idea in their head, specifically in my field, that somehow we're all working together to shroud a conspiracy. That somehow all three million of us, we all know something, like the Earth is flat or the moon landing didn't happen, and we're all able to work together in, in, in cohesive fashion to try to keep it from getting out to people. And I right. try to tell people that um, what's actually happening is the opposite. We actually make careers off of proving people wrong. You know, what our goal is not to prove someone correct. Our goal, you know, if someone could come along and prove that general relativity is wrong, that is someone's whole career. They made right. a career. They get the job at whatever university they want to get a job at, and they're going to be able to get tenure there, and they're going to have a great career just off of proving one long-standing idea incorrect. And I don't imagine it's any different in archaeology. I, I think that the, the concept is to rewrite history, but by using the scientific method, not rewrite, that, not rewrite. That's correct. I, I, that's yeah. absolutely correct. Um, and if it were possible for somebody to um, rewrite the chronology of ancient Egypt mm -hmm. and demonstrate that the pyramids are actually 5,000 years older than they actually are, that would be an amazing doctoral dissertation. That person would 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 be, you know, mm -hmm. if they could be persuasive, um, they could make a career from completely transforming Egyptology. Yes, um, that would be something they would be rewarded for doing. It wouldn't be suppressed if they were able to do it using the scientific method in a persuasive way um, that is testable and 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 can be reviewed by peers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it has to be persuasive. You know, people can come up with all kinds of things, but if they if they don't hold up to scrutiny, if they if they can't be tested, um, if they don't conform to the the information that we have and can collect, then they're not worth anything at all. I mean, yeah, you know, the the truth is like a diamond. It 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 has. Um, you, you scratch it and, mm -hmm. and try to think of ways to 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 deform it or or. You know, to to um, to test it mm -hmm. and 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 to test it rigorously, and if if it withstands that testing, then then you go with it. Hmm. Yes. Um. Have you? How many? How often, rather, do ancient alien theorists contact you? Ever? Do you ever get like a stray email? Um. I do. Um. I would say it happens every couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm I'm known for particular ex ex expertise in particular things. For example, um, in southern Costa Rica, there are these enormous stone spheres mm -hmm. um, that um, you know you may remember the opening scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones is being uh, running out of the cave with his giant 
stone sphere rolling behind him. Well, mm-hmm. those are real objects. Those are found in mm. southern Costa Rica. They were made a thousand years ago by the people who lived there. Um, and I've studied sites that have them, and I, I, you know, know about it as much about stone spheres as there is to know. But because of that, every few months I'll get a query, an email from someone who says, "Oh, I have a new theory about the stone spheres." Um, and uh, someone once contacted me and said, I, I think that they were projectiles from a intergalactic warfare that happened in the Earth's atmosphere and they fell to Earth as projectiles. You know, stuff like that mm-hmm. every once in a while. Um, but yes, I do get contacted. How do you handle it? Like, do you message that person back and you say, no, and here's why, no, or, or maybe... that's what I do yeah. is I say, I say here's, here's some information that you might not have considered. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what you you know, need, need to take into uh, account if you're, if you're going to review your theory and I'll provide them with links or I'll provide them with article articles. Um, and I'll just try to lead them to correct information. Yeah. I, I encounter this sometimes where most people that contact me are crazy people and they have, you know, crazy people, not meaning they're like schizophrenic, but meaning they have, you know, profound ideas that are just so easily proven wrong. Right. But every now and again, I'll get someone who's done legitimate work as an independent scholar. And and while the, the, the scientific method wasn't necessarily followed, like they might have already made up their conclusion and they're trying to come up with, with some way to prove their conclusion correct. The point is they do legitimate work and and they could actually be an asset if they were in academia and doing the scientific method correctly. Do you, do you see that a lot? Because I see it and I, I – like I don't want to say it makes me sad, but I I just see it in my head. I'm like, man, you you could have been, you could have been a real asset to the community had you just gone down a different path than the one that you went down. We see that in archaeology all the time. Um, archaeology actually depends a lot on amateur archaeologists and people who are mm-hmm. collecting data that we simply don't um, have the have the resources or the personnel to be able to to get to. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that happens in astronomy, too. Take something like comets. You know, astronomers mm-hmm. simply don't have the resources to track on all of those comets. But I know that there's a whole network of comet watchers out there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, who, who, who track and name and identify all kinds of things because you can do that with a with a good backyard telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's that t- that particular data collection can be crowdsourced to trained amateur astronomers. Um, the same is true for archaeology. Um, we rely upon people to identify archaeological sites or to bring in artifacts that they, that, uh, that, that, um, they've encountered. Um, you know, non-professionals can do a lot to help with archaeology. Um, and then we encounter individuals who just kind of go down the wrong path Mm -hmm. and (laughs) spend their whole careers trying to find Atlantis or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's like, man, you could have used all of those skills to, to answer some really interesting question rather than, you know, this particular fallacy that you decided or fallacious series of, uh, or fallacious, what's the best way to describe it? A house of cards built on fallacies mm-hmm. uh, where you haven't, you haven't really understood how flimsy the foundations are yeah. <laughs> before launching into this multi-year study. Uh, that just a couple of assumptions will prove was wrong. Right. A few years ago, I was in New Orleans presenting at a conference, and with big conferences like this one was, thousands of attendees, it's really hard to do 
good vetting procedures, right? When people submit abstracts or people submit talks or people submit right. posters or whatever, it's because, you know, there's only a few people organizing this thing and you have thousands of submissions. And so one of the things I noticed is that there were not just one, but multiple talks given by people that didn't necessarily have credentials and were also giving rather nonsense talks. I remember mm-hmm. one from a guy who claimed that he could um, explain turbulence. And he couldn't explain turbulence. No one has yet to explain turbulence, but it certainly wasn't going to be his ideas that were going to be explaining turbulence. Have you been at a conference where this sort of thing has happened, where people slip through the cracks and and you go to a talk that's really interesting and you realize, oh, wait a minute, even academia can can be infiltrated. I don't want to say infiltrate is not the right word because I think that these people, some of them deserve to have the outlet to discuss their ideas with with people who are knowledgeable in the field. But um, do you have that situation happen to you? Oh, absolutely. I think it happens it happens frequently. Um, I think we do a pretty good job uh, in my professional society of, of vetting papers and credentials and things like that. But mm-hmm. sure, there are all kinds of things that are that are really kind of iffy. Um, and um, to be perfectly honest, I don't mind having it there because I really think that you have to have some ideas at the fringe because sometimes those things turn out to be good directions and uh-huh. interesting cutting edge. I mean, you really have to be able to be willing to, to tolerate a certain amount of that stuff in order to be able to, to advance the field. I agree. hundred percent. Um, yeah. So I've always felt, I mean, contrary to what the narrative is that you get from the pseudoscientists, we don't reject it. Um, if it's got, if it's got some possibility to it, we'll, we'll allow it and, and entertain uh-huh. it. And it, and that happens all the time. Um, I could also make for you a pretty long list of credentialed PhDs um, who just became complete crackpots. I know I was reading that in your in your in your work. I was reading about several instances of that, specifically when it came to to you know the Mayan twenty twenty twelve the Mayan calendar um, right. situation. That there were legitimate. Um, sci- now I don't know what the field of archaeology is like at the top, but in the field of astrophysics, like you have to. You have to be really damn lucky to not only get a PhD, but also to go on and get a job, a tenured position, um, faculty job at a big university. And uh, it would take, you would have to be like seriously convinced about an idea before you were willing to, to throw your your entire career away to, to pursue it. Um, so that's how hard is it to like get to the position that you're at? It's not easy, right? They're not giving away faculty jobs to archaeologists, right? So, uh, it what is the the logic? What is the thing that convinces these people to pursue something like that? I don't understand it. Well, um, they just I, believe some, it, I guess. Some some of it is is kind of stepping out of their own discipline. That that's not an unusual thing. Um, there was a professor at Harvard University who was a renowned uh, marine biologist, mm-hmm. one of the world's experts on echinoderms, uh, which are basically starfishes and sea urchins and mm-hmm. things like that that he studied in the South Pacific. But he developed a hobby of um, identifying and reading inscriptions that he found in New England. Um, and he became convinced that there were inscriptions all over North America mm-hmm. that indicated ancient sea travel um, from mm-hmm. Spain and the Mediterranean. Um, 
it was not his area of expertise. He had built his whole career on marine biology, but he then began publishing on these spurious inscriptions, which many of which turned out to be fakes and hoaxes. Yeah. Um, some of them turned out to be scratches that were not made by humans at all, but that he identified as as inscriptions. Um, and uh, his book became a bestseller. It was something that was popular, popular and widely read. But the archaeologists regarded him as a total crackpot. What happens um, in that scenario? Like to him, does Harvard say, guy, we, we're, we're done with this? Well, a lot of this happened towards the end of his career. And that's sometimes how it happens is somebody, you know, once they once they've made a name for themselves in one area, they decide to start dabbling in another area. But mm -hmm. um, I think Harvard was kind of embarrassed by it. But at the same time, they said, you know, we encourage people to investigate those things that uh -huh. interest them. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why tenure exists. Um, is that when you have the freedom to work on whatever problems you find are interesting, some of those problems are going to be kind of wacky, and some of that research may be kind of off. Yeah, um, that's very true. That's actually and, very true. Um, yeah. That happens with astrophysicists as well. Yep. Um, I don't know whether you've been tracking on uh, any of the research that has to do with the um, the younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Nope. Uh, do you know what this is? No. Please tell it's me. The, it's the idea that a um, basically a, a, a swarm of, uh, of comets um, struck the Earth 11,600 years ago um, and caused a radical change in the Earth's climate, mm -hmm. as well as impacting human populations at that time um, and sort of changing the course of human history as a result of, of climate and cultural effects mm -hmm. and um, it's actually become a, a very interesting uh, problem um, where there are there's a camp of archaeologists and astrophysicists who are supporting this hypothesis and then there, there are others who are just saying no the data doesn't add up and mm -hmm. this, this doesn't make sense and we we don't we don't buy it um, but one of them is an astrophysicist who's begun interpreting um, inscriptions and mm. interpreting artwork. Mm -hmm. uh, and although his training is at, in astrophysics, he thinks he's been able to find evidence uh, at this site called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey mm -hmm. that humans were actually able to observe these comet impacts and recorded them on their monuments. Um, now, the archaeologists don't buy that at all. He's an astrophysicist with no training at all in the interpretation of ancient art, mm -hmm. um, but he's been able to publish on it in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah, that is a an interesting one, because you know there is a lot of it. it seems weird though, doesn't it seem weird that people, uh, you know, sort of throw away their their because when you become a scientist, you learn how to do science, right? Right. You don't always just learn like here are the set of facts that correspond to your particular discipline. You know, you spend a lot of years just learning. Here's how you do good proper science. So right. why do you throw that away when you move into something unrelated to the thing that you're currently working on that well i, I think a, it's a it's gap. similar to what we were discussing a little bit earlier which is that um there's a lot of archaeology including the interpretation of ancient monuments and ancient art that's not quantitative that quantitative methods simply don't don't apply mm -hmm. it, it, it's a different type of different set of skills that you're applying to interpret um um artwork and so um 
the methods, the scientific methods simply don't apply. Mm. Um, and, 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 um, it becomes an issue of making a persuasive argument using these other, these other strategies. Um, I think that people do it because it, 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 it's an exercise of their intellectual skills. Mm -hmm. Um, but they typically do it without consultation with others who, who would be able to put that work in context. Um, and then they wind up making claims that simply don't, don't make any sense. Yeah, it's also sexy, right? Like it's it's sexy to try to come up with an idea about the fact that the the archaeologists have it wrong and the history of humanity is very different. Um, that's like a something that you you want to do. Your ego almost wants you to do that, right? Your ego wants you to do that in a lot of science, you know, whether right. it be astrophysics, whether it be biology, whatever. You always want to be the scientists play this this game that I disagree with, and I think that most of them are being disingenuous, that they pretend that they, they, they love the, 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 um, journey and they love the scientific method and, and that they don't care about the awards or the rewards or the findings or, but I, I think that the majority of that, they're, they're trying to be humble. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that they do very much like that. They do very much want to be known by people. They do very much want to be in the mainstream. They do very much want to have impactful findings, be the Einsteins of the world. Um, and many of them, I think, are unwilling to admit that. Maybe I'm crazy and maybe I just feel it and no one else feels that. Uh, but I'm at least honest about the fact that I feel that. And mm -hmm. I think that that feeling leads a lot to trying to come up with fantastical ideas that defy evidence in every way. Well, I think it's it it depends on the individuals. There are there are scientists who like to be in the limelight. There are others who really don't. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and with every some, human too, right? Been some amazingly brilliant scientists who had no interest in publicity, who had no right. interest in in you know even speaking to the general public. They mm -hmm. they just wanted to work on their on their particular nerdy thing for other nerds, and that was. What I they were both I encounter about. that all the time. Yeah, I'm like, hey, I have an audience that spans the entire United States and over 60 countries. You want to chat? No, nah, I'm good. I'm going to sit over here and do my work. Yeah, so. well, and I encounter it too where people will say, well, you know, what have you what have you discovered that we've heard about? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you know, not very much because the things I work about on are, are, are problems that you're probably not going to hear about because they're not big and flashy and exciting and they mm -hmm. have nothing to do with aliens or, or big monuments or except for the Stone Sphere stuff or the 2012 stuff. Um, and actually the things that I've worked on that actually have garnered a lot of attention, um, I have really mixed feelings about because a lot of the, what I had to say, you know, was not reported accurately. Mm -hmm. It had very little, um, uh, impact or, or staying power. Um, my whole experience with the whole 2012 thing is that I was constantly putting things out there and talking to the press and they would come back and get it wrong every single time. <laughs> it, would they you know, misquote you or? Well, it's not that they would so much that they would misquote me, but that I would point something out, such as that the ancient Maya never predicted that the world was end in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then they just kind of come back and repeat it over and over again. So the Maya predicted the world would end in 2012. Well, no, I told you three years ago that they didn't. Mm -hmm. Why are you coming back yeah. with that? But yeah, we could transition to talking about that. You know, this, this, my, this might be the the maybe the most um, viral pseudo archaeological idea I've ever experienced. I don't know about you know 
your entire career. I know Atlantis was a big one, maybe not in my, the Bermuda Triangle. That's not necessarily pseudo-archaeology, but man, when I was a kid, the Bermuda Triangle was swallowing everything. Right. And yeah. now I don't hear about it anymore. Um, right. But anyway, the, the, the Maya, right? In 2012, I was in, um, what grade would I be in? I'd be in 10th grade, maybe. 10th right. grade. I was into it. Like I was reading about it. I was interested. I was like, man, did the Maya really predict the world would end? Um, and most of the world was. Like that's a pseudo archaeological idea that almost everyone born before like 2006 probably was familiar with and knew about right. and could well, talk about today. Yeah, I, and I think you're absolutely right. It was one of those that went went viral. Um, the reason why it went viral was sort of an accident of history, um, in that it began to be popular um, as a result of the internet and graphical web browsers. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember that extremely well because it was in 19, summer of 1995 uh, when I first told my students to begin using a program called Mosaic 1.0, which was the first graphical web browser. It mm. sort of is what evolved into Netscape Navigator that then evolved into Firefox. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, But anyway... Uh, 1995 was when I was encouraging students to, to go online and, and, and look at this thing that was called the World Wide Web. Well, it just so happened that one of the early websites on the Mayas was a calendar program. Um, so in 1995, you could go and you could you could run this program and, and it would give you dates and show you how the Maya calendar worked. Um, and people began noticing, oh, hey, here's this date that corresponds to a bunch of zeros. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen then? Um, and so as the web access evolved and as the Internet evolved, that particular mythology also evolved. Um, and I've been able to trace that very clearly as to how how the how the web and the 2012 phenomenon mythology sort of went hand in hand. Yes. Um, it. So the the viralicity, that's a new word I just created, the viralicity <laughs> of the Maya 2012 situation. Right. was was spurred by the internet but the idea didn't begin there right the idea as far as i could tell from reading the work you've done began as far back as the 19th century uh, that's the, correct the seeds was, of the idea it, it right was in, well it was in the it was in the 1890s that people figured out how the maya calendar worked 1896 in fact is when mm -hmm. there was a publication that showed exactly how the maya worked and actually calculated out this future date um most people didn't pay that much attention to it, but it was something that had been figured out, you know, over a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, it really, what I traced the viralicity to um, was a book that was published in 1966 um, called The Maya. That was a um, a paperback book on Maya culture that was, uh, I think, it sold for 2.95, and given that it came out in 1966, it was appropriate for any backpacker to stick in their backpack before they were heading off to Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually had a small section in it that discussed the Maya calendar. And it was the first publication to associate this date on the Maya calendar with Armageddon. And mm -hmm. essentially it, it, it said that um, the, um, I used to be able to quote it exactly, but I can't remember it now, but it, it essentially said that um, just as the Hindus had their had their cycles and kalpas, uh, that the Mayas also had had these cycles, and that on the date when this cycle ended, they would anticipate an Armageddon. And it's just one line. 
in this paper in this popular paperback book. Um, but something else that I discovered, which I think uh, worked on people's subconscious, is that the author of this book was also a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. And the particular wording that he used in those sentences sounded a lot like the wording of H.P. Lovecraft in The Call of Cthulhu <laughs> about mm -hmm. when, the, when the stars come round again. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that began to work a number on people's subconscious. Um, and they thought, well, you know, I've heard this before someplace. Um, and that also contributes to its viralicity. Right. So how popular was this book then? Because if, if you know, you say 1966, right? Yeah. So if someone comes to me and say, hey, the let's just make some, the Egyptians making this up, predict the world will end in, in 2090. Right. I, I, I'm not going to really care. I'm not going to put much thought into 2090. I'm worried about 2030 and 2040 and, you know, the immediate future. So did this gain traction at that time? Like, well, oh, 2012. Well, the person who wrote the book, his name is Michael Coe, actually said, you know, when, when he was interviewed about this, you know, why did you even speculate on this? He said, well, you know, when I published the book, I figured that some people who were alive would still be alive when this date came around. Mm hmm. He, he made that mental calculation that that people who would read about this date would would be around to see it. Um, and so he planted those seeds. And sure enough, that's how it that's mm -hmm. how it came about. Um, if you were to say something about 2090, well, there may be some people around here who would see it. Mm -hmm. But if you want to make a date go viral, make it one that is far enough off that you can build the mythology about it, but not so soon that you'll be proven wrong right away. 2055. That's the one. <laughs> I'm going to write a book after this. Um, yeah. But this idea, right? 1966, some people are reading it. Maybe it's getting a lot of popularity. But then it started to really take off with the advent of the internet. But I didn't hear about it until like 2011. Yeah, well, right. it happens. It happens before the the internet. Um, it, it 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 actually um, develops during the during the seventies and eighties um, in the counterculture. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, in let me see, I'm getting my dates right. In um, 1975, <clears throat> Terence McKenna and his brother Dennis. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if you or your listeners know who Terrence McKenna was. I, but, I know both. Um, I know the names. Yeah, and I can picture many the people. people identify yeah. him as a as a, a promoter of psychedelic use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in particular, mushrooms and DMT. He mm -hmm. actually, he and his brother actually published a book on how to how to grow magic mushrooms. Um, well, in 1975, Terrence and Dennis McKenna published mm -hmm. a book called The Invisible Landscape, um, in which even at that time, 1975. They were suggesting that 2012 would be when um, there would be a um, an eschaton, mm -hmm. um, a, a sort of end of of of, of an age um, and an increase in novelty, um, which was tied with something that they called Time Wave Zero, which was a computer program that mm -hmm. they modeled based on world events to sort of predict patterns and cycles in human behavior yeah only so, someone who's super high would come up with the name time wave zero i just <laughs> want to say that real quick yeah well it 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 was uh that's that's what happens i mean if it seems like this stuff was thought up by people on drugs it's because it was yes um 
But anyway, that's 1975. That's long before the Internet. That's long before the web. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, um, it's really just on the verge of personal computing. They, they developed this program on a, on a mainframe, not, not, on a, not on a desktop, because the IBM BC wasn't, wasn't even around. Right. Um, so anyway, within the counterculture, because of the McKenna's, and then also because of this guy named Jose Arguelles, uh, who also in the late 1970s began um, playing with these ideas of of, uh, of calendars and predictions and, and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, he and also someone named Frank Waters, actually several books that came out around 1975 uh, that essentially were planting the seeds of this idea of um, of something happening in 2012. Um with Jose Arguelles, it actually has an astronomical tie-in um, in that he uh, identified an astronomical event that he was referring to as the harmonic convergence mm. in 1987, where he felt that the um, conjunction of three or four planets, I can't remember exactly what the configuration was, um, would indicate the beginning of um, a new age. Mm-hmm. And he actually coordinated these meditation events around the planet in 1987 um, for the purpose of bringing about this global change in consciousness. Mm-hmm. And at the center of his mythology was this date in 2012. So he, in 1987, this is also before the web, he began promoting this. But it was mostly in sort of new age circles. Have you ever uh, talked to any of these people? Um, any of these popular figures in the in this mythology story? Well, no, I I haven't, and unfortunately, Terence McKenna died in mm-hmm. two thousand. I I actually exchanged emails with Dennis McKenna, his brother. Mm-hmm. Um, Jose Arguelles, I never had any any contact with. Um, he ironically, well, ironically, McKenna died in two thousand. Um, Arguelles died in 2011, a, a year before mm. 2012. He had spent his most of his career focused on what was going to happen in 2012, but he didn't make it to be able to see it. He didn't want to be proved wrong. He's like, "We're out. We're dipping out. You know, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna be right forever. No one's ever well, gonna tell us we're wrong." I, I think it would have been a lot more interesting if he he'd been around and on the scene when yeah. it happened, but unfortunately, that that didn't unfold. Um, and then another person who I did have. Um, personal contact with, although I never met him face to face, um, was a writer named John Major Jenkins, mm-hmm. who published a book called Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. And he's the one who came up with the idea of the of the galactic alignment um, and, and how December 21st, 2012 would represent this um, uh, culmination of a 26,000 year procession of the equinoxes that the Mayas were aware of. Mm-hmm. Um and um, quite literally indicate the beginning of a new age. I mean, we use the term new age to refer to this belief that there's mm-hmm. going to be a transformation, spiritual transformation. And that's literally what he felt would happen. So not every one of these people thought that it was an apocalypse, right? Did Some, some people thought it was going to be a transformation or was the transformation in itself an apocalypse? 
Well, it it's very interesting how the how the words were played around with the 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 word that was used in 1966 by Michael Coe was Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Armageddon is actually a you know military <laughs> violent conflict. Yeah. Um, other people began using the term apocalypse, mm-hmm. which actually means an unveiling or a revelation. Um, and then oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was associated with something completely different. Fair enough. Well, look look it up and, and look into the history of the term. But apocalypse means an unveiling, huh. a, a revelation. So apocalypse and Armageddon are not the same thing, although they typically are conflated. Yeah, in my head they're always conflated. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, um, you know, I didn't track on Zechariah Sitchin and his Nibiru mm-hmm. uh, theory. Um, so I'm not sure when really that got going. But there were two very different um, categories of thinking about 2012. One was that there would be a physical destruction that would happen as the result of the impact from an asteroid or um, sunspots or um, uh, the Earth shifting on its poles Mm -hmm. um, or all of the above. All of the above, Um, yeah. um, And then there was another category which really saw it as a metaphorical um, transformation of human consciousness, that it was something that was going to be a spiritual metaphysical new age Mm -hmm. that would not involve a physical destruction, uh, but rather a a shift in the way that people viewed themselves and reality. Huh? So the, 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 the 2012, that idea in the 2012, you know, formulation of ideas is an interesting one because it's vague enough to not be wrong. That's right. Right. Do you think that was engineered? I do. I think I think people play with these this vagueness mm-hmm. so that they can say, oh, look, I was correct. Yeah. That but, really but happened. yeah. But at the same time, that's not nearly as sexy as saying the apocalypse, the world is going to end. Oh, that's right? a, of course, that's correct. Um, it's a lot, a lot sexier to say, look, you know, we're all going to be destroyed to get together. <clears throat> and so, you know, we need to. And actually. Total destruction was what some people thought about. Obviously, others didn't feel there would be total destruction because they were building survival shelters and they thought mm-hmm. that they'd be able to make it through that. And then, of course, there was that whole doomsday preppers program. Oh, yeah. Uh, which on, on the National Geographic Channel, um, which had a lot of viewers. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people kind of bought into that. And there's still people who are doing that. In fact, um, there are people out here in Kansas who have converted... Um, Cold War era missile silos into multi-million dollar bunkers in order to survive the coming apocalypse. Man, that's such an interesting con. Like I get it, right? It's not so far off that I don't get it. I understand because not even if it's like some you know crazy um, apocalypse brought on by alien invasion or galactic alignment or whatever theory you want to throw in the in the hat. But even if it's just you know like war. Like I, I, a part of my brain understands it, like mm-hmm. building a bunker. It's not right. so far off that I would call anyone too. Cra- I call them crazy, but I wouldn't call them too crazy for doing it. Now, if it's like a multi-million-dollar bunker where you right. have like, you know, a hundred years worth of food storage and and a bunch of other. Like what's the? Have you ever seen the the Cloverfield paradox? I think it's called. 
Mm-hmm. It's a movie. Um, but there's another one that comes before that, like a prequel. I forget what it's called. But anyway, the guy has a bunker and there's an alien invasion. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, it's not so far off that I don't get it. But the 2012 stuff, you mentioned that it is, is you know, filled with, with drug-induced ideas and drug-induced theories. Why is psychedelic use always associated with pseudo-archaeological beliefs? Because as far as I know, Flat Earth didn't start by some dude, um, you know, who, who took DMT, who smoked DMT or d- drank ayahuasca or something, and then he thought, wait a minute, maybe the Earth is flat and the government is lying to us, right? I Maybe I'm miscalculating this, but I, I almost always feel like the ideas that I encounter in astrophysics, they're, I, they're born out of like a distrust for the government. And the ideas in pseudo-archaeology are often born from psychedelic use for wanting to believe that humans were once much grander much more um you know um, technologically advanced than they actually are right well and then there's also see this well we also you you haven't uh, mentioned the um the element of white supremacy which is also a part of that these ancient these ancient civilizations are these ancient civilizations are, are are rarely black or East Asian, yes, um, or anything other than white people. There, there's very much a threat of white supremacy in in the ancient aliens thing, um, which is that you know non-white, brown and black people couldn't possibly have built those pyramids. It, mm-hmm. it must have been it must have been either aliens or a, an advanced white civilization. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. Like, you know, when you educate people on these things, if some if a student comes into your class and he's an ancient alien theorist or whatever, and you're educating him, you're 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 telling him that the things that he learned from his TV show is wrong and the magical ideas and that he has in his head are wrong and aliens didn't create the pyramids but humans did. But at the same time, it's worth empowering these people for doing the thing that they did. I mean this is incredible work. Building a pyramid with very you know archaic technology, that's something worth you know being recognized for. Absolutely. Yes, of course. It, it, it required incredible ingenuity, much of which has been lost to us. You know, it, it, these are forgotten technologies um, that we don't use simply because we don't have to anymore. We've got we've got cranes and power tools, mm-hmm. so we, it, we don't need to figure out how to do that. Um, but if someone were to say to you, you know, look, you need to drill a hole in this rock, but we don't have any power tools. How are you going to do it? Well, there are ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're incredibly ingenious and um, and and creative. Uh, we just don't know what they are, or or we may have forgotten what they are. Um, you know, the example that I like to use uh, comes from the show um, Survivor, mm-hmm. um, which is that basically if you watch Survivor or Naked and Afraid or any of these any of these shows where they mm-hmm. take take people and put them out in some remote place and and they need to survive the most difficult thing for them to do is to start a simple fire yes Uh It, it, it used to be taken for granted where the most basic knowledge that every human had was how to start a fire you know ancient people started fires every single day <clears throat> to be able to use a fire drill and start a fire using sticks or stones was mm-hmm. no big deal but you take someone today put them out in a survival situation and say, start a fire, they're at a total loss. Because, yeah, very, because that, 
that technology has been forgotten. Very good point. I'm going to say something. I want you to tell me if I'm off base or if maybe I'm onto something or I'm correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. The example you you give. Why did we lose the ability to make fires? Um, in my brain, it's because we don't rely on it to survive anymore, right? We can go turn the stove on. We can turn the oven on. We can cook our food. We don't need a fire. We don't need a fire for light. We could switch the light switch on, etc. Right. So, in these ancient civilizations, right? We also don't consider the fact, and again, this is the part that maybe I'm spewing nonsense. We also don't consider the fact that some of these civilizations thought that building the temples would in some way, that their existence, their survival relied on building this temple. Whether it be to worship someone, whether it be to, to I don't know, some mystical reason that they thought they would appease a god or, or something else. They right. thought that their very survival relied upon it. And so it's hard to imagine them building the temple without considering the fact that they were doing it to stay alive. That's they were correct. doing it to, to, to because they thought they had to. That's is, is that correct? Yes. Well, and, and, and actually, you know, you made me think of something that, that helps put this in perspective, but you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, in that, um, you know, it's, it's, I often will say, well, the, the Mayas and the Aztecs didn't think the world was going to end in 2012, mm-hmm. um, which is true. But they thought the world was going to end every damn day. Mm-hmm. In Maya and Aztec religions, they believed that if humans did not perform the ceremonies that they needed to perform, the sun was not going to rise in the morning. Right. Uh, the rains were not going to come the world was not going to continue, that it was absolutely uh, essential for humans to build the pyramids and perform the ceremonies in order to keep the world going. Yes. Now, you've been to many of these Mayan temples or structures, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I want to ask, why the Mayans? Why are people so fascinated with the Mayans predicting the end of the world? Isn't there many civilizations in the world that have many calendars over the history of, of why the Mayans? What was because it? They're, they're, they're brown people who lived in the jungle. Mm. <laughs> the, the, both, both their race and their environment are, are incomprehensible to Western culture. It's like, how did, how did people living in the, in the most difficult possible habitat, and they were brown people too, how did they, how did they do this? Mm-hmm. They must have had help from Atlantis or a- aliens or someone else. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Um, yes. But, now, what actually yeah. is the Mayan calendar? Because I don't even know. Like, is it a? Is it a? Is it? What is it? When I look up Mayan calendar, I see like a, a like a, a round stone with carvings on it. Yeah, that's not the Maya calendar. In okay. fact, the most common thing that people think of when they think of the Mayan calendar is actually a um, an Aztec monument. It's not Maya at all, and it's not a calendar. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked because I have no concept of what the Mayan calendar is. Yeah, well, the Maya calendar is is basically, and actually, there are mul- the thing is there are multiple Maya calendars, but uh, the bottom line is that it is um, part of a whole number based mathematical system mm-hmm. uh, for keeping track of days. It's a count of days. Um, it's actually not so much a count of years or mm-hmm. of other cycles, although they do count that. The main thing that they count is is days. Um, and they don't use fractions, and they don't use decimals. Everything is calculated in terms of whole numbers. So Maya math is always whole number math. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a bigesimal system. 
It's not base 10, it's base 20. Okay. Um, and so, you know, those people who are who enjoy numbers and enjoy mathematics would really get into the Maya calendar because it's it's kind of fun math. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was used to be able to um, keep track of a ritual calendar, which was 260 days long, um, and also a solar calendar that was um, 365 days long. I see. Um, although it's not 365 because you know that it's got some decimals that come after that. Mm-hmm. They were able to adjust for that with whole number calculations. I see. So like, uh, okay. So again, like what is it written down somewhere? Is this like, how do well, we actually, there, what? There were, yes. It's, uh, it was, it was written down with a series of, of dots and bars and symbols. And we actually have thousands of Maya inscriptions that record calendrical dates. Hmm. Um, and that's how we figured out how it how it worked. Um, some of it was still in use at the time of the arrival of the Span, where it was still in use at the time of the arrival of the Spanish. Um, it's still used in bits and pieces today um, by various uh, Maya groups in in the Guatemalan highlands to keep track of agricultural cycles and things like that. So it it it, it never ended. It's 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 uh, bits and pieces of it are still being used, um, although the the full system ceased to be used shortly after the Spanish conquest. Mm-hmm. What is the, uh, what is the main, the, the, the big, the very, jeez, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Chichen Itza. Is that mm-hmm. the Mayan, um, temple? It's the, one of them. The very, it, f- it, yes, there's it, many, many, the but most famous one yes. in, 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 uh, in, in, in the Yucatan in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I was actually there for December 21st, 2012. Were you? Um, yeah, I went oh, with a man. group of uh, archaeologists and, and friends, and we actually, uh, you know, wanted to wanted to be there for the big event. So How many we, people were there? Like an insane I, number of them. I would probably say about thirty thousand. Jesus. Um, but um, they actually did not have as many people for that as they typically get every year for the vernal equinox. I was going to uh, talk about this. Yes. They actually get bigger crowds for the vernal equinox each year than they had for December 21st, 2012. Were you ever there on on the vernal equinox? Um I wasn't. I I was I was there a couple of days after, but I was not there on the vernal equinox. I just learned about this yesterday when I was doing research for the show. Oh, okay. Th- what happens on the vernal equinox? And I was like, man, I need to go. I need to go there because that is incredible. If you, if you could probably do a much better job of explaining it than me. Um, and I, and when this is on the video, if people are watching on YouTube, I'll put a video up of, of what exactly happens. But it is incredible. It's like an, an incredible, amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's a shadow that sort of uh, is, is cast on a, on a part, part of the pyramid that makes it look like there's a, there's a snake yes. kind of going down the stairs. Um. You know, but it's not clear that that was intentional. Um, oh, it's not. Yeah. Okay. See, now the sexiness goes away. Now all of a sudden. Well, I mean, it, it's something that definitely happens, um, mm-hmm. but we don't really have any record that that was important to the Mayas, or that they they made it intentionally, or that it happens on any other temples. <laughs> so it it's sort of a quirky phenomenon, um, but uh, it definitely happens. Yeah. So and all right. So people would naturally say, "Wait a minute, this couldn't be a coincidence." You because you know it's uh it happens on a particular day and this particular thing happens and there's like a serpent head at the bottom right, right. so it like serpents down until it reaches this this head and and you know people might 
call, like, be skeptical that they didn't mean to do it. But, you know, using statistics, which you talked about earlier, there are dozens of Maya temples, are there not? Yes. And there's no question that the Mayas were paying attention to the equinoxes and the solstices Mm -hmm. and that they used that to orient their archaeological sites. That is without question. Right. So my, my, my point in the statistics is there are dozens of temples. So all of a sudden, like the brain, your brain should be more inclined to think, wait a minute, maybe this could be a coincidence. Because if it doesn't happen on any other temple, then maybe, mm-hmm. maybe this particular instance could be a coincidence. That's correct. I mean, when you're building hundreds of temples that are astronomically aligned, um, the chances of getting some interesting shadows on one of them are pretty high. Yes, exactly my point. So you're there on December 21st, 2012. I'll say, 10th grade me, scared. <laughs> I was ter- I was like, well, it's all over. It's all, you know. I was convinced, not convinced, but like you have like a little bit of fear. At least I did. Like, wait well, a minute. But 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 you may you may you may have forgotten the the, the real fear that so much of the country felt. Um, December twenty first, twenty twelve was the designated date. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what happened on December 14, 2012, Exactly seven days before. I. Oh, geez. I like I wrote my brain is telling me something happened, but I don't remember what the something is. Well, on December 14, 2012, one week before the Maya date, the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. I did know that. Yes, of course. And that's what sort of sucked the air out of the room. Mm -hmm. People had been building up to this December 21st, 2012 thing. And then this horrible tragedy happened in Connecticut. And that was what was in all the news stories. Yes. Um, so that's one of the reasons why a lot of the December 21st, 2012 events didn't get reported or didn't get the attention that they might have gotten otherwise, is that people were preoccupied with this horrible massacre. Yes, as they um, should be. As, you know, I mean. Of course. Yes. But but the question that lingers in my own mind, and I'm, I'm not inclined to conspiracy theory, although um, I am very curious about this, is whether the shooter in that incident <clears throat> was motivated in part um, by a belief that the world was going to be ending in a week. Oh, that is a very interesting question, a very interesting point. Um, yes, I, I mean, you know, when you have someone who is delusional or schizophrenic or, you know, et cetera, uh, that, that could be the type of thing that that could motivate such an action. So yeah, well, it, or at least lead someone to say, you know, what have I got to lose? The yes. world is ending in a week. Exactly. Yes. Um, it's a very so, good point. But but it's something that has not been explored in part because of all of the other horrible conspiracy theory that was associated with that event. Yes. Yeah, and I, you know, it's um, it's a sad, it's a it's a sad avenue of research, right? I think that many people probably tried to subconsciously avoid it. Because right. it, it is such a heartbreaking event. Of course. Um, yeah. So you're in, um, is it, where is it? Where is the Chichen Itza? It's in, um, it's in the northern Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. So you're there on December 21st. Are you talking to people? Sure. We Do- were going around and talking to people and kind of observing different groups that were meditating or praying or doing cosplay. Mm-hmm. It was it was getting married. We saw several people getting married there. Oh, that's yeah, that's a good that's a good move. That's yeah. a good move. You get married. Now how, how now at least 
two of those couples are very upset about that decision, right? Because they thought the world was ending and they did not want to be with that person. Yeah, that's for sure happened at least twice. <laughs> but, you know, so is there fear? Like, do you sense fear? Do you sense I like... I didn't sense any fear at all when I was there. I just I just sensed celebration. Yeah, I, I maybe I'm the only one who felt fear about it because most other people didn't care. Well, I think there were a lot of people who did feel fear and who were very apprehensive about it and may have been, you know, hiding in their bunkers, uh, mm -hmm. certain that something bad was going to be happening. Um, and I think that there are people who do walk around with a lot of with a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wonder about, um, and this is something you would know uh, in in um, astrophysics, is whether there are a lot of people who are genuinely afraid that an asteroid is going to wipe us out uh, at any time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just had a couple of weeks ago, there was a near pass by by one that hadn't been tracked. Right. And it was revealed afterwards that it had been sort of closer than the moon's orbit and that mm -hmm. we didn't know about it until a week after it. I mean, until just a few days after it happened or something like that. Yeah, um, I here, I don't sense much fear from asteroids, actually. Um, in, in the history of me educating the public, doing planetarium shows, doing public talks, etc., it's never the, the asteroids that scare people. And it that stems from actually a bias that they have, which I would call a good bias, that they don't realize the magnitude of asteroids. They don't realize how big they are. And they don't realize how many there are. Um, right. They don't realize that there's asteroids that are the size of, of the Empire State Building or or the size of entire small countries, that sort of thing. They don't consider what could happen like at the Chicxulub, um crater. Sure. Right? They, right. They, they they don't wrap their head around that. Um, what scares well, them Chicxulub more – only happens – oh, it was only 65 million years ago. So right. So what are the chances that's going to happen during our lifetime? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty slim. Slim, yes. Uh-huh. Um, there are other things that I notice a lot of fear from. One of them is the sun. Whenever I talk about the sun, and I mentioned that in four and a half billion years, it, it will become unstable and become a red giant star because it will run out of fuel at, at, at its core. That scares people. Even mm -hmm. though I say four and a half billion, they don't right. hear the four and a half billion. They hear the sun um, you know, growing larger and engulfing the earth. That's one that elicits a lot of fear. Yellowstone elicits a ton of fear. Right. That's another one that I the see a lot. Super volcano. Yes. Um, and have you been to Yellowstone? I haven't. Oh, you, you, I would recommend going. It I, is. I would. I would love to go. It. It. I understand why it elicits fear. I mean, it's a volcano. You're on top of a super volcano when you're there. Right. Um, now I had Dr. Michael Poland on the show before, and he's the head of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and he assures me that it's not going to blow up. And if it is going to blow up, that we'll have years of warning signs before it ever blows up so i think you're safe to 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 go there but there is fear there's like a little bit of fear you because you could see the ground like boiling and you can see the steam vents and sure. it is a very scary thing you, it elicits this response in your head like are we sure this thing's safe should i be here should i go far away um and then of course there's all these fake ideas about cyclical patterns in the history of yellowstone which are completely unfounded um but yeah there's a lot of things that, that tend to elicit fear, and and I, in particular, notice that I'm susceptible to a bunch of them. I don't know mm -hmm. why I'm susceptible. There was one guy. He was, like a, he was like a Christian radio host who would always predict the world would end, and he predicted it would end in like on like May 12th, 2012 or some, some date in 2012. 2011. He was the, the billboard guy. Yes, um, this guy. Right. 
So he predicted the world would end on this particular date. I remember I was working at an amusement park at the time where I worked throughout high school. And um, I go into the, the freezer and he predicted a very particular time, right? Mm-hmm. He predicted like down to, I think it was like down to the second or down to the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go into the freezer to get like a new box of fries because I'm, co- I'm a cook. I got to go get the frozen fries. I walk into the freezer and I hear like the loudest thunder clap that I've ever heard ever because it started to rain outside really bad. And I was convinced that when I walked out of that cooler that the world would be gone. I was like, well, I survived because I was I was lucky enough to be in the freezer at the time. But there's not going to be anyone out here like my heart because it was in my mind. It was in my subconscious. I knew it was right around the time. It was like, you know, 412 or whenever he predicted it. And right. it, yeah, I'm, I'm so susceptible to that. So in 2012, I was like on edge a little bit, like, wait a right. minute, you know? And I think that that fear, at least in me, elicits, um, like almost, um, a part of my brain that even though I'm a scientist is susceptible to believing things like the 2012 disaster, not, right. not out of logic, but out of fear. And right. I'm curious if you saw that a lot. Sure. I think that I, I, I did see that and I encountered it. I encountered it quite a bit. Um, in fact, in um, in the fall of 2012, I think it was I'd have been November 2012. I was the um, keynote speaker at the Doomsday Preppers press weekend. Oh, uh, man. They were, they Tough were sort of, audience. They were, they were beginning beginning the uh, beginning the new season. Um, that was the one that was going to include December 21st, 2012. Mm-hmm. And so I got to meet some of the uh, the preppers features on, featured on the show. I got to meet some of the, the people who were building these doomsday shelters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were people who were genuinely afraid that someone, something was going to happen. But it was also clear that they really enjoyed, in their minds, imagining what their responses were going to be and how mm-hmm. it was that they were going to be able to save their families because they were prepared. Um, and that that was something that really built built up their uh, confidence and addressed their fear was this idea of being, being prepared for whatever might happen. Um, sadly, that preparation also included being armed to the teeth with lots of ammo and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and things along those lines. Um, but, you know, I think getting back to this theme of white supremacy, I think a lot of white supremacy is also based in fear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the fear. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the fear that maybe white people really aren't superior to everyone else, mm-hmm. which in the minds of white supremacists is something they take for granted. Um, but confronting the actual evidence that people of all different colors, races, nationalities, cultures were actually intelligent and creative uh, and innovative and 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 hardworking and able to do things. You know, there's mm-hmm. abundant, abundant, abundant evidence that what someone looks like has really very little correspondence to what it is that they're able to do. Right. Uh, um, some people find that a scary thought. Um because they enjoy the idea of privilege so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, to be perfectly honest, behind ancient aliens and Atlantis stuff is is white supremacist fantasies. Mm. Yeah, you see a little bit of an, in, well, not a little bit, a lot of it, in America when it comes to Native Americans, right, as mm-hmm. well, with the, the history of, of Native Americans. I mean, look at, like, you know, the Redskins national football team. Right. Right, you still have it 
you know, pervading a, a lot of culture. Sure. So it, it does happen, and it does tend to shape our history, right? Um, you know, I've I and don't the Redskins. They should get rid of that name. It's it it's very insulting, and you know, all of those mascots are insulting. We should be well past that by now. Yeah, it's a it it's a it's a real weird thing. It's in insane that, you know, there's a lot. Of, so my high school football team was named the Shimokan Indians, right? Mm-hmm. And I I don't know, like, there was an Indian. The mascot was an Indian, right? I, it, it, should that be did, done? Like I in my white brain, I I don't know if I should find that offensive in any way. To me, well, it's almost empowering. Um, but well, again, I, to, I don't talk know. To, talk to native people and get their perspective on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, exactly. that's, that's, you know, ask them what they think about it. And if you don't know, then, then you'll learn something. Exactly. A hundred percent. So I, I think when, if I'm being honest, when I think about it, like when I think about the Mayans, I do honestly think like the first thing that comes into my brain is a white person. I don't think about a brown person. I don't think about a different culture. So it even pervades. I try to be as honest as possible. You know, right. I'm not saying that, that I want the Mayans to be white people. I'm right. saying that when I think about the Mayans, I picture a white person. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and when people imagine the Mayans in that way, even if they imagine the, even if they imagine the Mayans to be brown people, mm-hmm. even if they see them as non-white, the ones who were the astronomers and the architects and the builders mm-hmm. were lighter than the other ones, mm. right? Um, yeah. <laughs> that it was the whiteness yeah. that gave them their intelligence. Yes. Um, mm. That's interesting. We, we, you know, which is a which is a white supremacist fantasy that has mm-hmm. no basis in reality. Right. It's, it's also one that has deep roots in history, and this is something that I've studied. Is is sort of what are the what are the roots of some of these fantasies and these beliefs? Um, and going all the way back to the 1870s, 1880s, you find that some of the first um, Western explorers to go and, and, and visit and write about some of these Maya sites believed that the builders of these sites came from the Himalayas, mm-hmm. that they came from that they came from Aryan um, uh, white um ancestry mm-hmm. that had migrated to Mexico and built the pyramids. Um, it, it was rooted in this notion that white people had done those things. And that's been there for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I always struggle with this concept because, you know, when I talk about the fact that I picture the Mayans to be white, um, it's like, it's something that could be fixed by education, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't want to, I would never call myself a white supremacist, right? I would never say that, like, I want them to be white. Right. I, I would say that I think of them as white. So it's an educa- – to me, it seems like an education problem more than necessarily, in my case, more than a racist problem. Right. Well, it goes beyond education, though. It's also culture. If yes. you think about you know, images in movies or graphic novels or television shows, of, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of insidious ways in which these particular ways of thinking about the past are are implanted in our brains. Right. Um, think about how Disney has always structured its evil characters. <laughs> they they tend to be in have black hair and yeah, you know, darker skin and 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 those types of things. Um. It's it's been it's deeply deeply rooted in 
our consciousness as a result of um, of the media and be, as a result of popular culture, as a result of what basically was colonialist white supremacist um, thinking that that accompanied the growth of um, of that pop culture itself. I mean, you can see how you know movies and graphic novels grew out of uh, the pulp fiction of the Victorian era, which was being written by colonizers. Um, it, it, there's a very clear lineage to it. I see. Um, to, to switch gears a little bit, mm-hmm. in your career, have you seen any pseudo-archaeological ideas gain as much traction as this one? You know, I've only been alive since 1995. So mm-hmm. realistically, I've only been a thinking human for like 10 years, right? Where I actually like process what's going on in the world in real time fashion and I catalog it and I store it in my hard drive. This is the only one I've seen. But people tell me that like Atlantis was a big deal. Atlantis was never a serious deal in my life that I remember. Right. So in your experience, is this a first for you? No, there's an even bigger one. Oh, a bigger one. There's an even more widespread pseudo-archaeological belief. Okay, yes. That there was a great flood and that Noah escaped with an ark full of animals. Oh, that's, yep. That's a big okay. one. Yep. That is much more widely believed uh-huh. than the ancient alien story. See, that's weird to me because it, this is another thing of like perspective, right? I try to talk to as many different people as possible and get as many perspectives as possible. People that, you know, talk to me in real life probably think that sometimes I'm creepy because not literally creepy, but the my podcast brain, there's a reason I do the show. The reason mm-hmm. I do the show is because I'm curious. And right. so the questions I ask you are no different than the questions I would ask an ordinary person mm-hmm. um, in day-to-day life. And so I never got the impression that people believed that. But also, I've never lived in Kansas. Okay? And now I don't know... It doesn't know, have to be Kansas. You'll was, find plenty of people in Rochester who believe it too. Yes. I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, and and my mother was not necessarily religious, right? So I was never around the religion. So I never necessarily met a lot of people who would that I would consider to be taking that literal. But the other thing, the other thing is that maybe I didn't believe it, so I assumed other people didn't believe it either. Right. Um, and of course, my Kansas thing was a joke. I don't think only Kansas has religious people. Um, I know that they are very pervasive across the entire country. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting point of perspective. So how so people and and it's not just religious people. I think that there are people who true. simply don't think about the ancient past, or who don't think about space, or who don't think about these things that you and I think about a lot mm-hmm. in in the same ways. So I think that you'll find non-religious people. Uh, and you'll ask them, you know, well, was there ever a time when the entire earth was covered by water in a great flood? And they'll say, yeah, there was. And it's mm-hmm. not because they have a fervent belief in the Bible. It's because for them, it's a reasonable explanation because they simply don't understand the physics and geology that would be involved in right. covering the entire planet with water. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've integrated it into their um, non-critical thinking about the ancient past. Yeah, so this it, is... A... And, and, and it's not that different, and you'll appreciate this, it's not that different from the way that people think about visitation from UFOs and extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone, any of us who know the distances involved, yes. you know, the distance from the Earth to the next closest star, uh-huh. 
and then the next closest one after that, or the distance between the Earth and the nearest identified exoplanet, yes. are so absolutely vast uh-huh. that the idea of little spacecraft coming back and forth between those places yeah. is utterly absurd. Yes, but 100%. I people don't think about space and people don't think about time um, in the ways that those of us who, you know, who deal with it every day do. And I, you know, I basically try to explain that, you know, astronomers think about space mm-hmm. in, in radically different ways than, than anyone who's not an astronomer. <laughs> um, right. And archaeologists and geologists think about time um, in ways that are totally different from your average person. Yes. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons I don't have any problem with the pyramid being built by humans, mm-hmm. because I know that over centuries and millennia, people developed the technologies that ultimately arrived at making it possible for them to build a pyramid, just like our cell phones didn't appear overnight. Mm-hmm. It would be magic if somebody suddenly had a telephone, cell phone. But when you take it back through everything that needed to happen in order to to make that cell phone possible from the invention of a microchip to the invention of you know Alexander Graham Bell to the invention of the telegraph to being able to generate electricity you know it takes time to 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 come up with a complex uh, piece of technology and archaeologists have no problem conceptualizing the time that it took to arrive at that particular solution or particular construction yeah uh it's an interesting one you know i i don't realize how pervasive some ideas are in the in the grand scheme of society right Mm -hmm. so but the the idea of the flood is associated with religious text right right so does that make it particularly tough to overthrow compared to an idea that's just associated with like a brown culture in in south america or a a brown culture in Egypt, does the fact that it's associated with religion in the United States of America, in the West, does that make it tougher to overthrow? I think it does, because people are more willing to accept the authority of the Bible than they are to accept the authority of the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in all of your astrophysical training, well, you know, that's just people with theories. You know, we can yeah. read we can read how the world was created in the Bible, why do we need to think about the Big Bang? Why right. do we need to think about black holes? Why do mm-hmm. we need to think about any of that stuff? Um, we've got the story right here, and people have been believing it for thousands of years. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's you know, excellent point and an excellent conversation. Is there anything you want to touch on before we call it quits for the day? Um, no, I'm glad that I was able to make a few points about the white supremacy thing because I think that's that's very important. It's a very important thing, and and you know it's something I don't consider maybe enough. Uh, you know I I don't consider the way in which our beliefs. I've heard people talk about it in the past. I've right. heard, so I'm more inclined to consider it than maybe most people. So it's a good right. thing to talk about. You know, and I do get listeners from from all over the world, and there's many people who probably see the way that that has impacted their culture and their own beliefs about the history of their peoples, you know? And so it's an excellent thing that we talked about it and that you brought it up. And it's something that I don't consider. And because I don't consider it, I don't think to ask about it. Right. Right. And so, yeah. And, 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 and you, what, what you described, I think 
helps um, lead us to an interesting exercise. You were saying that when you think about the ancient Mayans, you somehow picture them as being white. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, you know, even if you're thinking about them as brown, you think about the astronomers and the engineers and the architects as, as being lighter than the rest. Mm -hmm. The reality, the reality is that the people who built the Maya pyramids, the astronomers, the engineers, and the architects actually looked just like the people who are being kept in cages at the southern border right yes. now. Uh -huh. the, 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 a, a large percentage of the individuals who are migrants being detained right now are descendants of those ancient Mayas who built the pyramids. Yes. Direct descendants of mm -hmm. them. In fact, you, many of those people are Mayas. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this actually earlier, but but it, it completely escaped me. You mentioned that in 1966, the 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 maya book was written i forget the title of it but it's just called the the maya the maya and people would put it in their backpack and trek into mexico what was the border situation like that i wanted to ask it i didn't want to derail the conversation could you just walk into mexico and walk back into the united states oh sure of course mm -hmm. you could take a bus to you could take a bus to the pyramids if you want <laughs> oh that would be nice yes yeah. i hope i hope to go there have you ever been to, have you ever been to easter island I haven't. I would love to go there. Oh, I really want to go I've to Easter Island. This, this, this little dude is sitting right here. Oh, what are they called? The the Moai? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. My, 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 little, my, my, my little Moa. Oh, yes. They're fascinating. Like that, you know, that sort of situation fascinates me. And that, that's, you know, it, to take a, a side note, that's a type of situation that causes me to think maybe pseudoscientifically. Because you look at Easter Island on a map and you think, holy shit like not only is it incredible that people built stuff there but it's incredible that people found it mm -hmm. you know and so that's the type of belief that makes you want to like think mystically yes well it it is one of the most uh distant points of land on earth and people got there mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing yeah it's um, incredible but it did take a, a long time to get there. And some of the more recent archaeology that's been, that's been done there shows that people were not there for as long as people thought they were. Right. And in fact, the, the statues are more recent than people were thinking. Mm. Yep. Well, with that being said, thank you, Dr. John Hoops, for being here. I appreciate it. You're um, very I welcome. appreciate you taking the time. And and if you don't have, do you have social media you'd like to plug or a website where people can find more of your work? Um... I think the best thing to do is just Google my name yeah, and you'll I'll, find it. I'll link it all below for you as well. Okay. So people can click on it below. So, all right. Thank you so much for being here, people. Thank you for listening and, and we're out. Okay. Thank all you. Right.